Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Find out how good you are. I know how good I am. Having three children with autism and being around them all the time, they make me better as well. If Lucas had missed that kick, I'd have been moving house. <laughs> but my favourite one that really made me was my love triangle with Triple H and Stephanie. And uh, how did you get this story? How did you know about this? Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. The only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technolwood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off as we have recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the best equality in social sports podcast. That's enough from me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Technowood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former Australian rugby player. He played 101 test matches for Wallabies and won the World Cup in 1991. Welcome to the podcast, David Campisi. Thank you, guys. That was sensational. Uh, Do you know what's... uh... It was actually 30 years ago this year we won the World Cup in 91. Long time, hey? You guys weren't even born. No, no, I was not even existing on this planet. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Make you feel very old. (laughs) We like to start our podcast with some quick fire questions before we start talking about your rugby career. Are you ready? Cool. Go for it. So if you could go back to one year, in your life, what will it be and why? Oh, dear. Uh, one year back, probably last year. And the reason is COVID was pretty devastating out here. Lost both my jobs. 
uh, wasn't great. So if I could have it this year, last year over again, I'd love to do it again. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? In my phone book, oh, could be anybody. I've got uh, I've got uh, Lord Geoffrey Archer. I think he's pretty famous. Great writer in London. Um, I've got Alan Jones, a Wallaby coach, and Mark Ella, um, probably. Well, I don't know if he's famous. Bill Carlin, uh, Jason Leonard's. You name it. Uh, I've got a uh, look a variety of people. Lived in South Africa for ten years. A lot of uh, famous people over there as well. Uh, Russell Crowe, the actor, uh, as well. So yeah, you get you get around when you mm-hmm. you've been around a long time. You you get around and meet a lot of interesting people. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? No, I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade anything. <laughs> Sorry, that that put you that, that stopped you, didn't it? Yeah, <laughs> right in my tracks. <laughs> When you were a child, you lived in both Australia and Italy. What are your early memories from your time in both countries? Yeah, well, I was born in a place called Queanbeyan in Australia, which is down near Canberra, the capital. Uh, my dad was Italian. Uh, who came out to Australia in the 50s. Uh, my mum was a local girl. Um, they got married. Uh, I think it was about two years old. My dad took my brother and two sisters back to Italy for a couple of years. And um, it was it was interesting because we were very young still, so we didn't know much about uh, the different styles of life. Came back to Australia. Uh, when we came back, it was hard because not a lot of people in Australia spoke Italian, so obviously what we'd learned sort of we lost. But uh, playing rugby in Italy um, back in the 80s, uh, I got to go back to uh, my same town and I remember driving in one day and I said, that's where I went to school and that's where I drove the tractor through the wall when I was two years old. <laughs> so the so the memories are there, but it's, uh, oh, look, you know, I'll be very blessed to, to have some very good experiences. Who were your sporting heroes growing up? Uh, look, I was, uh, we, we've got a, a, rug, a game of rugby league out here, Aussie rules, and obviously cricket. Uh, I wasn't really into rugby. Um, so growing up, there was a lot of rugby league guys, um, who I liked a lot. Uh, in cricket, there was guys like Dougie Walters, Dennis Lilly, Marsh Thompson. Uh, in rugby league, there was guys like Johnny Raper. You probably wouldn't have heard of these guys. Uh, then there was Mal Meninga. Uh, Ricky Stewart was a very good player who played rugby with me. So it's, um, uh, golf, Greg Norman. I met Greg Norman a couple of times. Another good friend of mine was a guy called Brett Ogle. And then later on, there was a, a good, very good friend of mine who comes from the same town called Mark Webber, the Formula One driver. So I was very fortunate to have a middle of nice people. When you were growing up, you didn't play much rugby, did you? Was it cricket, golf and rugby league that you played lots? When did you first become interested in rugby union? Yeah, as I said, rugby, uh, the town I grew up is a, a rugby league town. So I, I played league from 8 to 16. Um I lived 100 metres from the golf course. Uh, I used to play golf every afternoon, won a golf championship at 15, schoolboys, played Aussie rules, played crickets, uh, played all sports. Uh, when I was 16, um, we played rugby league. We lost the grand final. Then I decided to go and play rugby and off I went. So I was very fortunate. I've got uh, three beautiful kids now and I try and tell them to play whatever sport you can. The more sports you play, the less chance to get an injury injured and the less chance of getting bored because your muscles and your joints are used to different motions all the time. So, yeah, look, it's it's um, 
it's great um, to to play all those different sports as well. But golf, you know, as I said, I've played in a lot of um, uh, celebrity golf days as well. So you meet some unbelievable people and it's just great to be out there and, um, you know, try and hack the ball around as well. You made your Australian debut in 1982 on a tour in New Zealand. How did you find out you had made the team and what was it like to get called up to the Wallabies? Yeah, what happened was we played um, the Australian under-21s. We played a curtain raiser to the Wallabies versus Scotland test in Sydney in the cricket ground. And uh, we played that day and uh, I played pretty well. The next day I went over to to watch a, a game of rugby and they announced the Wallaby team and I was selected. What what happened back then was there was eleven older players had not that weren't available for selection because in those days it was all amateur, so people had jobs, so they kept on going on tours, so they couldn't go, so they had to pick eleven young guys. And I suppose fortunately or unfortunately, I was one of them, so I was uh, very excited and uh, off I went to play in New Zealand, uh, which were the best team in the world and still are, and it was a, a very very interesting experience. What was it like for you as a 20-year-old going into a dressing room with these international players? Was it was it a scary place to be or was everyone very supportive? Yeah, well, when you go on tour, you obviously play tour games first. You don't go straight into a test match. So we had a couple of games and obviously, you know, we get to know each other. And, yeah, look, I was – I think what helped me, I – Played rugby league all my life, so I was I didn't know much about the All Blacks, so I was very fortunate not to actually. I went out there and just played, and had fun because I didn't, you know, the All Blacks have got that massive awe about them, but I hadn't come up through the rugby rugby ranks, so I didn't really worry about it that much, and I think that really helped me. In 1984, you toured the UK and you were the first Australian side to defeat all four UK nations. What are your memories of that tour and did you always enjoy coming to the UK? Yeah, I've just, um, I've just got a new book out um, and in the book it talked about my rugby days and believe it or not, my best rugby was always played in Europe <clears throat> because in Europe, they, if you made a mistake in Australia, they'd, they'd put you in the paper, they'd give it, they would just give you so much of a hard time. But in Europe, they'd actually enjoyed people making mistakes because the style of rugby out there was very, very different. <clears throat> so my memories were, you know, playing with the Ellers. We played 18 games every Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday. And as I was a fullback winger, I used to be either playing or on the bench. So there was a lot of game time, got a chance to see a lot of interesting places. Um, when we first arrived in London, we went to watch a team called Liverpool Soccer Team. And uh, that was 984. And in that soccer team, there was a guy called Craig Johnson, Barnes, Rush, all these great players. And believe it or not, Craig Johnson is an Australian. And I saw him last week and I had a coffee with him. And it's just amazing when you speak. He's just a really nice guy. You wouldn't have known that he played for the top English league back in the day. And it was just experience. Rugby gives you a life experience. It gives you a history experience. Because, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've been to France. I've been to Israel. I've been to Argentina. I lived in South Africa for 10 years. I lived in Italy for 10 years. Travel the world. That, that's, that's what rugby's about. It's an education. 
we noticed that when you were playing rugby for Australia, you used to play so many matches on a tour. Now teams only play a handful of matches on their tour. What is your opinion? Should teams play more matches on their tour or not? Yeah, well, I think we should. And it's like, you know, it's like you guys doing this podcast. The more you do it, the easier it is, isn't it? You know, you yeah, get a lot yeah. more confident. <laughs> yeah, it is. So you don't get intimidated. Um, what's happened, unfortunately, we went in 1985, 96. They decided to go professional. Up then we were amateur. So basically as amateurs, we got 20 pounds a day. But we all had jobs and we had a great time. We really enjoyed it. Now it's professional, full-time. And it just changes a lot of things. It changes a lot of aspects. It changes your life. Um, so now what they've done is you play a test match, test match, test match, like Australia did recently. In our days, you'd come over for about you know, seven or eight games. You'd play a, a, a London division first. Then you might play a Western division. Then you play a test match. What happens there it gives all the younger guys an opportunity to play at a different standard of foot rugby. And now that we don't have that, all the young guys struggle a lot to play because you're playing, at, you know, every test you're playing, you're playing against a, a very, very good country. So, and it, it makes it very, very difficult for the young guys to get a start or get the confidence or to get that experience that they need. A few years later, in 1986, you toured New Zealand and won the series. This was the second time an Australian team had won a series in New Zealand. Why are New Zealand so difficult to beat and how good was it to finally win a series there? Um, the reason why they're so good, um, New Zealand's not a very big place. I think there's about five, four or five million people um, and rugby's a religion. That's all they've got. They love rugby, uh, but their cricket's getting a bit better. But rugby is their major sport. Um, everyone who's born over there, they're born to be an all black. So that's when you've got a country that's so dedicated to one sport, you expect them to be good. And um, look, I played them 29 times. I think I won eight or nine times, which is a very good record, believe it or not. But that's what happens when you play the best team in the world. And that, that judges you. The more you play them, the more you understand them and the more you want to be like them and beat them. Oh, in 1987, it was the first ever Rugby World Cup. You said that it was disaster for Australia and for you. Why it was disaster? Yeah, look, it was hard because we, um, you know, they have a, it's very difficult. When you tour country, you tour a country, you go to... England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, uh, or you might go to America, you go to France. Uh, the World Cup 87 was actually in Australia. So we as a team, was, we were in hotels in Australia. So we couldn't go and see family and friends. It's a very different environment when you go on tour because you want to see the, the different countries, the different cultures, the different history. And we just didn't, I think after 86, we were just getting the same team. We're getting a bit older. Um, yeah, it was just a pressure. It was just pressure. And sometimes some teams can handle pressure and some can't. So, you know, the game against France in Sydney, you know, you go past, well, they've actually knocked down the stadium. It, was, it only held 17,000 people. So what happened was there wasn't really a lot of people watching. But um, it's, look, you know, sometimes that was the first Rugby World Cup and I think the IRB didn't want the World Cup, which is the International Rugby Board, it was only because Australia and New Zealand wanted it. So 
that was the first World Cup. And if it wasn't for Australia and New Zealand, we probably wouldn't have a World Cup. But now have a look at the, the amount of money it brings into the sports. So, But unfortunately in rugby, it's still the same six countries that can win. Every year the World Cup's on, it's always the same six countries because the, strength, the, 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 the top nations have got more money, the bottom nations struggle. And uh, it's we've got to move on. We've got to try and get somewhere to make a lot more other teams competitive so other, other countries can start winning the World Cups. Speaking of pressure, how do you handle pressure during a rugby match? Um, sometimes it's... I was very, uh, very fit. I loved rugby. I wanted to be one of the best players in the world, but, you know, you can't really go out and tell everybody. So you've really got to perform. Um, I made sure I was super fit. Uh, I made sure I was prepared for a game. Nobody saw the training I did. They only saw the performance. Um, that's what you judged on. So I made sure that I was super, super fit. And I just wanted to experiment. I wanted to be someone different. So I didn't want to stand on the wing, just wait for the ball. I actually wanted to go looking for the ball. And, you know, I was very fortunate. I played the great era with um, Bob DeWire coach, Alan Jones. We had the Ella brothers. Uh, we had some fantastic players, Nick Farr Jones, Michael Lyon. And when you've got those other players who want to play the same style, it makes it very, very easy. And um, I don't know if you watched uh, the All Blacks play France a couple of weeks ago. That's fine. Um, the French game. Uh, France played very well to beat the All Blacks. Did you watch that game? Uh, no. 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 Oh, yeah, it was only two weeks ago. Mate, unbelievable. You know, but the French, you know, that's the way they play. You see, when we played in the old days, the French had that flair. They would run the ball from anywhere. The English were the English. Nothing's changed. Uh, the Africans were, they all, every country had a different style of playing the rugby. Uh, but now in the professionally, that we all play the same. So it, it is very frustrating. But um, look, you know, that's, that's what the pressure does. The pressure is about getting out there playing and really proving how good you are because unfortunately, um, you don't know how long you're going to be playing at the top level. So you might as well enjoy it. I just want to come in and ask a quick question, David, regarding a, yep. your last point about um, six teams can win the World Cup. So what, Australia, mm. New Zealand, South Africa, England, Wales, France, probably. Well, every, every, every World Cup so far, if you think about it, uh, France have been in three World Cup finals and lost. Australia, if you think the first one, New Zealand won the first World Cup 87, but they didn't win the second one until 24 years after that. Australia won 91-99. The Northern Hemisphere teams, England's the only team to win it out of all, what is it, eight, five, eight yeah. World Cups? So my question would be then, what can the IRB or the rugby world do to help the teams like like some of the British teams, Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, Canada? What can the, what can more can be done to help these teams? Look, I think that um, a great way, I suppose, is you've got uh, America going for the 27 Rugby World Cup. Um you know, Australia's going for it as well. But, you know, I think back in 94, I think uh, Maradona played in American World Cup. And the publicity and how that game grew is amazing, you know. Um, if you think about America, there's 330 million people there. Now, if they got a really good team together, they start beating people, you know, the size of the guys. But again, it's a typical thing now where you've got the same, the rich are the rich, then the poor are the poor. Uh, you had uh, Tonga. Tonga played the All Blacks this year, lost by 103 now. They go over to play Scotland, they lose by 60 points. So the week after they played in England, lose by 50 points. I mean, really? What, what's that going to do for their rugby? 
you had the All Blacks play America, win by 114, I think it was, something like that. So it's really, it's not fair. But the thing is, in football, you don't know who's going to win in football. You know, you just don't know who's going to, because who, you know, you've got so many good teams. And all the players play for their natural-born country. If you think about rugby now, and there was a statistic about last couple of tours, last week, last uh, game, and I think that um, 46% of, of Scottish players are foreigners. Then you've got the, some Welsh foreigners. Then you've got New Zealand's got 12%. You've got all these countries. Ireland's like another 28 29%. So if you take all those foreigners out and play for their countries, you can understand you know, what it'd be like. But it's, it's so difficult now. You know, we, and I think also, I think the, um, if you're going to be professional, we need to be professional. I don't know if you've seen the debacle about Rossi Erasmus, the coach, uh, and the IR or the World Rugby. And the thing is with the World Rugby, some of those guys there have been there from the amateur days and they're in the professional era, you know. So I think they've just got to be realistically and try and get that game to that next level and um, start to say, right, okay, this is how it's going to be. The year of the World Cup, um, all these um, Tongans, Samoans, Fijians, Georgians, um, you've got Uruguayans and all that. They were allowed to play against some really good teams, not just play against club teams leading to a World Cup. In 2007, France, before the World Cup, played a couple of games in England, club sides warm up to, to the Rugby World Cup. Now, how's that going to work? <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's very difficult. You know, as I said, you've got Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Argentina playing to get against each other every year twice. You know, then you've got the Six Nations, the same guys that play against each other all the time. They can go 80 minutes. Um, I think this year Fiji played Wales um, and I think Fiji were almost there but that last 10, 15, they just didn't have that discipline or they just didn't have that, you know, that 80 minutes just con- continuously putting pressure on and, you know, hang on, they'll give you a good 60 minutes at the moment. The Henshaw's Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace in mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance and we offer a free, no obligation consultations and quotations so give us a call today in 1989 the british lions came to australia and won the series 2-1 i'm sorry to ask you this but what are your memories of that series especially your error in the third test that helped the lions to win Hmm. what are you laughing for that's not funny <laughs> Why do you always ask that? People always ask the question. Uh, look, you know, look, it happens, and sometimes mistakes happen. Um, but because of me, because of my name and the way I played, I, I copped a, a lot of rubbish. I copped a big, big problem. But then, you know, the thing is, the week after, I tried exactly the same pass, and it worked. And again, in the '91 World Cup, I played pretty well and we won the World Cup. So sometimes in life it's not always up. You can't you can't always go up. Sometimes you've got to make mistakes. But the most important thing is about make learning from the mistakes. If you make a mistake once, you don't try and do it again. 
<laughs> you know, and uh, and that's in life, in life as well. You make no one's perfect, but sometimes you've got to really try and push yourself. I love to push myself. In in life, uh, a lot of people say like, "There's the tightrope." Okay, a lot of people will go to the tightrope, but they won't go above it because it's too scary. I wanted to go up there. I wanted to see what it was like. I didn't want to be just a safe player. And you know, sometimes you expect to make mistakes, but you know, you've just got to have the uh, the confidence and the the ability, and you know, the the will to to win and try things, and you keep on going. Moving on to a happier note for you, the nineteen ninety one Rugby World Cup. Leading up to that World Cup, did the team and yourself feel confident that you you could do well? Yeah, we did. I think we uh, we had ten test matches that year. Um, Argentine first game was, I mean, sorry, that year we played England, uh, who won the uh, Six Nations. They came out uh, and we beat them by 40 to 15 in Sydney. Uh, the week after we played New Zealand, we beat New Zealand. We went to New Zealand three weeks after that and we lost 6-3. So it was very close. So leading to the World Cup, we had Argentina. Not a great game. But the thing is in World Cup, it's no good playing your best game up, first game, because you've got a lot of games to go. You've got to build into the games. Um, Argentina was pretty tough. Samoa on the Wednesday, I think, was only, I think it was 9-6 we won. It was very tough. Wales, pretty easy. Ireland, very tough. New Zealand. The hardest game of the whole tournament was probably um, England because we were mentally tired. You know, when you think about six weeks of rugby uh, and you train every day, uh, and you come to the last game, which is the most important game, really, that you get mentally tired. And it wasn't a great game. You know, we were very fortunate to win the game, uh, but we won. And we we were just just held on long enough to win. Look, it was a great experience. Um, but again, it's it's very, very difficult to to look back now and say, you know, we wanted to win like everyone else, but I think we just played the best rugby on the day. And and that's what got us through. You won a very close quarterfinal against Ireland, and then a very tough semi-final against New Zealand. You scored against New Zealand and produced a brilliant pass for Tim Horan to score. Is that game one of your best memories? Um, it's hard because rugby. I played rugby sevens as well, and I was fortunate to go to the Commonwealth Games in '98. Uh, used to go to Hong Kong every year and play sevens. You know, I think it was a, a very important game because of the moments. You know, um, it was you're on the world stage. It's a rugby world cup. You're playing the best team in the world, and you know you just go out there and just trying to have as much fun as possible. And the more fun I had, the more relaxed I was. Um, you know, but I, I played a lot of a lot of games of rugby in my, in my life, and there's a lot of games I played. And I was playing fourth grade for Queanbeyan, which I thought in 1979, which is my best year of rugby I ever had because I was learning, I was young. Uh, then you go and play for the Barbarian Games. Then you go and play in Uruguay. It, it's, there's so many great games. I think the World Cup, it was important because it was just the moment, the moments in time where Australian rugby, we won our first Rugby World Cup. So I think those moments are very important. Uh, but then there's always another goal to set. You know, you set one goal, you achieve that, then you try and achieve the next one and the next one. So going to the Commonwealth Games in 98, playing for Captain Australia, you know, that was a massive moment for me. Uh, it's a shame I didn't get the chance to go to the Olympics. But again, you know, that's uh, that's life. So it's just about enjoying the moments and 
and trying your best. So you then playing England in the finals at Twickenham. Yeah. What yeah. are you, your memories of that game? <clears throat> uh, the memories were um, meeting the Queen before the game and just uh, I saw a guy called Mark Ella, who was one of my best number 10s I played with. I saw him in the grandstand and before the national, I was looking at him and I was smiling and all that. So I always like to be relaxed before I played. Uh, look, it was a pretty tough game. It was very, very hard. Uh, England's at home are always hard to beat. And as I said, you know, we just we were just going through the motions. We we were fortunate to score a try. Um, I got the ball uh, in the first half. I chipped it ahead. It didn't really bounce my way, um, and I almost scored, but I didn't. So those lost opportunities sometimes come back later and make it harder. Um, I think it was only twelve six the result. So at the full time whistle, I think everyone was very very happy. Just that. Just to stop playing because uh, it was it was a very very tough six weeks. We spoke to former Australian captain John Eels on the podcast a few months ago. What was he like to play with? Yeah, Eels was good. You know, Eels was a young guy when he came in, uh, like the whore and the little. I was young when I came in in 1982, um, and I think it was important that the guys around you sort of looked after you and helped you and would teach you how to play. And Eelsy learned a lot. He was a great player and then up, ended up obviously captain in the 1919. Uh, but, you know, everyone had their roles. We all did our roles. If you if someone in a team doesn't pull their weight or doesn't do what they're supposed to, that's when you have a few problems. That's when you let the team down. But I must say in our day, like everyone had a role to do, they all did their role to their best of ability. And I think that's how we become the world champions. Moving forward four years to the World Cup in South Africa, what was the World Cup like for you? Uh, it was tough. Uh, we'll get, we were four years older. You know, being the current world champions, there was a lot of pressure. Um, we played our first game against uh, South Africa and we lost in, in Cape Town. Um, and then after that, it wasn't great. You know, we had a lot of injuries going into the World Cup. Uh, we just didn't – it just didn't feel the same, you know. Um, and it, it was very disappointing uh, to lose to England in the quarters. Um, and, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, one year you can be the world's champions, four years later you can, you know, you only get to the quarterfinals. But that's what sport's about. That's why you've always got to try and keep on top. You've always got to try and keep updated with the, the technology, the way people play. Um, and, you know, as I said, four years older, it's, your body gets a bit slower. Uh, your, your mind wants to do things but the body doesn't want to go where the mind's telling you and uh, yeah look it, it's, that's, that's what happens it happens in life you know and that's, that's why it's, it is very very difficult to win back-to-back rugby world cups or back-to-back soccer world cups as well So do you meet Nelson Mandela? I didn't get to meet him no I was very uh, very sad I didn't um, uh, my coach oh, Captain Nick Farr Jones did in 1992 after the World Cup, we actually went to uh, South Africa to play. Um, and then we, um, I, live, I got to live in South Africa for 10 years. Uh, I married a, a beautiful lady, Lara, who lived in South Africa. Um, and I coached over there and I lived there, a beautiful place. So, no, I didn't get to meet him, which would have been, you know, would have been a, a fantastic experience to meet someone who's, uh, who's done so much for the world. 
Here at the Amethyst Academies Trust, we are incredibly ambitious for our schools and our pupils, and we believe that there is no ceiling on what can be achieved by anyone. Working in partnership with Penhall School and Technal Wood School, we are proposing to refurbish the beautiful Penhall Mansion, a grade two star listed building in Wolverhampton, into an exciting and professional specialist vocational college for young people aged 14 to 19 with special educational needs and disabilities. Changing the face of employability for young people with SEND, the college will offer specialist career pathways and in-house vocational learning experiences for students that will be open to the public. Students will be able to develop their skills, knowledge and flourish in confidence across a wide range of audiences. We need to raise £400,000 to refurbish the mansion and provide accessible and stimulated learning and working spaces for students and the community. We are relying on public donations, business relationships and support, no matter how big or small, to make this college a reality for our students. Donate today. Go to www.sedgwick.aatrust.co.uk Sedgwick College. Discover bright futures. Uh, you lost the quarter-final to England. We read that after the game, you were on the same bus as the English. <laughs> Is that true and what happened? I, I don't actually know. I, I can't remember. But I do remember that we all we both stayed in the same hotel. So I might have got on the wrong bus. I probably thought I'd won the game, so I thought I'd go and join the English. <laughs> <laughs> But why is that uh, on the bus? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, I think after the game we were pretty disappointed. So you know, it's it's the because what happened back then we once you made the semis, you had to go back to Joburg, and every team had the same Joburg. Then we had to fly down to Cape Town. So it made it very, very frustrating, very uh, sometimes disorientated after a game. And I just don't know. I just I don't know if I did or not. But uh, well, people talk about it, but. I didn't last on it that long. So you play your hundred test match again, Italy. What was yeah. it like for you playing hundred games? Yeah, look, it's it's interesting because we we um, there's a thing you play now. It's a test match. Every time you play a test match, you get a cap. So a test match is against a country. So. As I said, you know, when I started, we used to go on tours. My first tour to New Zealand, we had played 11 games. Out of the 11 games, I played nine, but I only get three test matches. So what happens, you play 100 tests. So every time you play against a country, you get a cap. So when we came to England in 1984, the Grand Slam, we played 18 games every Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday for 18, 18 games. So when I played my 100th test was in Italy, uh, I played in that oval in Italy uh, many years from 84 to 90, 84 to 87. I played in Padova. Um, my mate, who's a great guy, put on the game for me. And, you know, if I couldn't play in Australia, my 100th cap um, to play in an oval in front of my fans, it was unbelievable. You then played your final match against the Barbarians. Why did you decide to retire after that game? Yeah, look, we uh, that was the first year of professionalism. What happened was I just didn't, you know, I mean, I, I think I had enough. I think my body was getting a bit slow. Uh, the game was changing. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, it's just one of those things you feel. You feel like I was 35, 36 years old. So 
you know, playing from uh, 19 to 36 is not too bad of an innings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it was very it's very sad, but, I mean, I, I had a fantastic time, you know, and uh, to, to play at Twickenham, uh, to play my last game at, uh, at uh, Carter Farms Park as well for Australia, and then the week after play for the Barbarians or against the Barbarians uh, in front of the, the Twickenham crowd where we won the World Cup in 91 was, was absolutely amazing. So... Yeah, look, it's always, you always it's always good to go out a winner as well. You know, we won that game, which was great. So, I just I just just loved uh, playing in England because everyone appreciates the style of rugby we wanted to play. You're always playing a lot of rugby seven. seven. During your yep. uh, career, do you think playing rugby seven helped you in the fifties, fifteen side for yep. quarterback? Yeah, you can because it's um, sevens is an individual sport, really. I mean, you've got seven plays against seven. So what you're trying to do is you get the ball, you try and show how good you are. That's what sevens is about, you know. And in Hong Kong back in the day, you'd have uh, Australia. um, You'd have the British Barbarians, the French Barbarians. You'd have the Irish Wolfhounds, all these different countries. But all, all the plays were test players. Like Serge Blanco from France, Jean Baptiste Lafranc, Frank Manel, Will Carlin, Yane Evans, uh, Robert Jones, JJ Jeffries from Scotland. So all the seven teams were made up of international players. So it was really a weekend of great rugby. The people came there, had a great time, and then you'd go home. Um, now the sevens tournament is very different because there's not a lot of test players play. So what happens is they try to create this tournament. But the problem is nobody knows who the players are. You know, you go to support your country and nobody knows who they are because they're not known players. And that's where I think that's where Hong Kong was so unique back in the day that you could go across and have a fantastic time. You meet all the people. You sit in the grandstand with the fans and, uh, you have, you know, absolute fantastic time. Now, professionalism changes a lot of things, you know, and it's very sad that the, the players really uh, are not really the best players in the in the country. But unfortunately, because of professional 15s as well, to try and fit that season is very, very difficult. We read that you helped out Formula One driver Mark Webber when he was starting his career. How did you help him and do you still speak to him now? Yes, Mark's uh, from the same town I'm from, Queanbeyan. I uh, played rugby for his dad. Uh, and I think Mark was the ball boy when I was playing. And, uh, yeah, he needed uh, some help financially when he retired. And, you know, um, it was very difficult those days because racing was not looked at as a, a really good sport. Um, so a lot of people wouldn't give money. So Mark needed some money to finish off the season and I, I helped him out for a season. And then, you know, I, he was very, very talented. He was a bit like me. He wanted to achieve something. Uh, but obviously rugby compared to motor racing is very different. There's a lot more money in motor racing because of the cars, the, the work and all that. Um, so, yeah, we, we, um, we're still friends. I speak to him every now and then. He's a great guy. And um, I'm just glad that he achieved something that he wanted to achieve, you know. Sometimes people in, in life need a bit of a start. And it's up to them to, if they really wanted to, to trace their goals. And, and I think Mark Webber did that very well. Do you you watch Formula One, David? I don't watch much of it now. No, no. So it was controversial um, yesterday, wasn't it? Well, so it was the last lap, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
So what happened in the last lap? The guy overtook him. So yeah, Lewis Hamilton was ahead the whole race from lap one. And then yep. he was about 30, 40 seconds ahead of Max Verstappen. And then there was a yep, crash. Yep. So the safety car came yep, out. Yep. And obviously yep. they all bunched up really close. And then on the last lap, Verstappen had brand new tyres and, and overtook Hamilton. But it was up all because Hamilton was like 30, 40 seconds ahead the whole race. And then literally yeah, the last, no, I, the last uh, lap. I heard, yeah, I heard on the radio that it was down to 11 seconds. Yeah. He had 10 laps to go. He got down 11 seconds and the last lap he took over. Mate, but that's opportunities, you know, and people do that. I mean, it's about winning, isn't it? Yeah, 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 true that. Really, I mean, what what would you have done? Uh, I would go. I'd like to win too, especially <laughs> when you know you you play and you race against one of the best guys in the world. I mean, you just got to take it, guys. Sometimes in life, you got to take every opportunity you can get. So, good luck to him. Well, we got a few more questions, Dave. That's okay. Yep, that's fine. Rug- rugby has changed a lot since you retired. Do you think rugby has changed for the better or not? Uh, professionalism came along, amateur one day, professional the next. I don't think it has made the game a better game. Um, if you watch now, you've got the TMO. Uh, it takes five minutes to decide uh, what happened. Is it a try, no try? Uh, the scrums are a debacle. Uh, the referee's got no idea what he's doing with the scrum. Um, I would rather see the, the two packs come together and do a scrum without the referee. But the thing that really annoys me is when they go to a TMO, you know, you're playing rugby at a speed. Then they do it in slow motion, you know. So it shows somebody tripping someone in slow motion and they say, oh, it's definitely a trip, you know. But in when you play, you don't play in slow motion. You know, if this guy's running after you, he's 120 kilos, you try and evade him as best as you can, you know. And But then they slow it down. Look, I just think that they, again, they forget about the sport. The people who love rugby are the supporters, you know, people pay good money. They don't want to see a referee. They don't want to see a TMO talking about what does this and why do they do that. It's just, you know, they, they keep on using the excuses. It's, um, oh, we're trying to make it a safer game. I mean, I played for 15 years, you know. I mean, I did, nothing really much happened to me. Uh, there's a lot of players who, who enjoy the game and nothing really happened. It's only happened now because there's a guy called Andy Farrell who was English who used to tackle around the head, and he did that two years ago. Shoulder charge, and that was a rugby league trait. So, you know, I mean, really, I mean, if they solved that straight away, we wouldn't be in a situation because, you know, the mothers see the, the, the high tackles and they let their kids play. But it's not only that. I just think that the, um, the lords of the game, they're, they're trying to make it so frustrating and, and so hard to understand that the poor supporters are getting lost. It's supposed to be an entertaining game, not a box-kicking game where they keep on kicking it away, which is absolutely boring. I'm glad I'm not playing now. We received lots of messages on social media and our email from our listeners about autism, so we decided that each week on the podcast we want to answer some of your questions. So it is time for... Autism Question of the Week! And this week's listener question, can you tell us a little bit about autism and socialising with people? Well, um, when I'm in the social environment, um, as I explained in a, in a past podcast episode, um, I find uh, eye contact I'm getting used to because uh, I used to hardly look at people when I did. And even if it was, it was like it had to be someone close that I knew, like, for example, a teacher or a friend. Um, 
And then I'm slightly introverted, but like I'm not not that much of an introvert because whenever I get the chance, I kind of want to socialise. So um, that's what happens when I'm in the social environment. You are second behind Briar Habana in the yep. all-time rugby try scoring chart. Uh, scoring charts. That must be quite an achievement for you. Yeah, look, I mean, when you start off playing any sport, you don't, you just want to play as long as you can. You know, there's no such thing as trying to go after all these records. Um, you know, I had the world records for 64 tries for, which must be about seven or eight years, uh, and then this Japanese guy came along. Uh, so he's number one, Brian Aban is two, and I'm number three. But, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's just a, a record. You know, it doesn't really, to me, it means, you know, I was very fortunate playing some great teams. You know, everyone did their role. I got an opportunity to score a lot of tries. That's what it really is about. It's not about going, well, you know, I scored all these tries. It's great. But at the end of the day, it just showed that everyone in the team, if they don't do their job as a foot winger to score, I haven't got that opportunity. So I was very, very fortunate to play, uh, played some great teams, some great uh, moments in life. And, you know, you just take it as it goes. And when you retire, you look back and go, well, you know, I, I really enjoyed playing. Um, and that was my role. My role was to score tries. So that's why I try to be the best possible player I could be. Uh, you have ranked by a number of news journalists as the greatest winger of all time. What would you say made you such a good player? I was prepared to try things, you know. I wasn't a player that stood, stood on the wing and waited for the ball. I went looking for it. Um, what really helped me as a player, um, I would play in fullback and wing for in Australia or Italy, and then I played number 10. So as a, a finisher, I learned how to score tries. But now I'm going to be the creator, which is the number 10. So he did all the plays, he did all the kicking, all the running. So now my knowledge of the game really grew because everyone's got a position to play. But when you play two or three positions, your knowledge grows and you want to experiment more. So I just think by um, understanding the game, I mean, you watch now, there's a lot of guys can't anticipate what's going to happen. You know, you've got to understand the game, why you play, you know, look at things and learn things and all that. And I was, I was given that opportunity and I, um, you know, I just – Kept on going out there, trying different things. And if they work, they work. If they didn't, you keep on trying. Do you think rugby players these days care as much as you did in the 80s and 90s? You see a lot of players now, after a defeat, smiling and taking photos for Instagram. Do you think the rugby culture has changed? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think it's all about um, creating their own brand, looking after their own brand. And... Look, but that's that's life, mate. Life's different now. You know, life, you know, we didn't have podcasts back in our days. You know, it used to be over the phone. You know, you don't even you've got to have no idea who you're talking to. So there's new technologies all the time. Um, we've got to adapt to how changes are. Um, but yeah, look, it's very disappointing when you after a game you lose and you see the player smiling. I that is I just don't understand that. But the sort of thing is they get paid. Win, lose, or draw, they get paid. So they don't really, it's a job. So obviously a lot of these people don't care, you know. I just, I find it very frustrating because I used to hate losing, you know. It would be really frustrating, especially you knowing how much work you've put in to lose and you lose because you made a couple of really silly mistakes. 
but that's that's what life's about and that's why you've got to learn to become the best have you got any funny stories of your time playing rugby oh look there's a there's a few funny ones um obviously playing when i got to new zealand uh in 1982 um i was 19 had no idea about i played rugby league so i was off I go on the plane to New Zealand. I get off the plane and there was this Kiwi winger called Stu Wilson. He was the best winger in the world at the time. So this journalist asked me, you know, <clears throat> what do you think about Mark in the great Stu Wilson? And I said, Stu who? So in New Zealand, I didn't think I was uh, a nice guy because he was their legend and I was this little young, little cocky little guy talking about mm-hmm. their legend, like who, who is this guy? Um, but honestly, I didn't know because I I played rugby league all my life. So, it, look, it, at the time, I copped a lot of lot of uh, pressure, and all the Kiwis wanted to kill me. But uh, I'm still here. So I, I survived. <laughs> Since retiring, you have done a little bit of coaching. Is this something you enjoy? And would you ever want to coach again? Yeah, I love coaching. Um, unfortunately. One of the biggest problems in Australia is that they don't, they don't want old guys coaching because we've got too much knowledge or we will disagree with them. Uh, most of the coaches are young, they've got friends, and it's very frustrating. You know, the thing is for me, um, we've got a lot of knowledge. You know, when I was growing up uh, at 19, I was looking to the older guys to learn uh, and the coaches. Now that I'm that age, but nobody wants to learn from us. To me, life is about experiences it's about knowledge it's about learning asking uh but um you know if you have a look at the, most of the coaches they get sacked one week they get another job next week they get sacked they go around in a circle they just follow countries around but they've never won anything you know and they it's just it's very frustrating yeah i love coaching uh and i've gone for a few jobs but unfortunately uh, nobody wants us old guys because we i think because we've got an opinion we like to give an opinion instead of shutting up and saying nothing so what are you planning for next year? Yeah, next year uh, I do a lot of coaching still. Um, I'm obviously looking to do some, if I can get opportunity to get in Japan or or Europe or Asia, do some coaching, love to do that. Uh, I think I've got a lot to uh, give. Um, and then uh, obviously we, I'll go over to the spring tour back into England next year. And then the year after it's the uh, French World Cup and hopefully to get over there for the games and uh, – Try and see some fantastic rugby and then get a bit of work over there as well. I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, David. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. No, I'd like to thank you guys. This, that was uh, very courageous to do that. I mean, it's unbelievable what you guys have done. As I said, mate, it's just confident. Just keep on going, enjoy, have a laugh, and, uh, mate, you never know, you might have your own show one day on, on, on a radio channel. It'd be fantastic. <laughs> no, thank you. thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. So, boys, well then, David's just gone. Tom, I'll start with you. How did you feel that podcast went? I think it went really well and um, I enjoyed everything that he said about how he played in rugby and also some struggles that he went through along the way and 
Um, I just like uh, how ambitious he's also been throughout his time playing rugby as well. Yeah, completely agree. After, what about you? Um, it's good actually because um, he's talked about his life. He's um, he's talked about uh, sponsorities, about uh, higher and lower. Talk about the teams, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well then, I thought it was quite interesting how he thinks the game of rugby has changed quite a lot and how he thinks it was better kind of back when he was playing and um, he said that rugby players don't seem to maybe care as much and the professional game needs a lot of work to, to become more professional, which I found quite interesting. So boys, well done again. Did another fantastic job of interviewing another World Cup winner. So congratulations, well done. You still enjoying it? Yeah, yeah definitely. Brilliant. Right, thank you so much for everyone for listening to the podcast. And as Tom said earlier, please leave us a review. Please leave us a rating. It really, really helps the podcast to grow. And we enjoy reading them out in the podcast. So thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next week. See you next week. You next Take week. care, guys. As a podcast, we wanted to raise our money and give back to our community. Therefore, we have decided that on Tuesday, the 14th of June, we will be doing a podcast marathon. We will be interviewing a number of different guests all day to raise money for two great causes. We have decided to raise money for two amazing charities. Both of the charities have been set up by guests we have found on the podcast. The first charity is the Little Rascals Foundation. This is a foundation that has been set up by former Wolves football footballer Dave Edwards. The foundation supports children with special needs in the West Midlands by providing exclusive play sessions outreach activities, holidays, clubs and more. Our second charity is the Lewis Moody Foundation. The aim of this foundation is to fund vital research into brain tumours, reduce diagnosis times and give families affected much needed respite as well as the chance to create some special memories. We would really appreciate it if you could sponsor us and support either one or possible both of these amazing charities you can find out how to donate by visiting our social media platforms. Just search TWS Sports Podcast on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram to find out how to donate. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the TWS Sports Podcast. Please follow us on social media by searching TWS Sports Podcast. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch some of our episodes in full. If you are listening to this on your iPhone, can you please go and give us a rating and review it? It really helps to grow our show. Thank you and see you next week. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.